City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. limits. Okay, City Limits, and we're on the, it's on the fifth Wednesday of the month this, this uh, month, so that means just as a, just to let listeners know, and this will be good news for them, <laughs> there's only two more programs after this, because tomorrow being the first, we actually, our second program of the month is the 14th. Um, so we're not going to go to the 21st, let me tell you that, getting close to Christmas. So we'll be, in two weeks' time we'll be finishing up for the year and then um, back in the first week of February have our usual break. Uh, there you are. Uh, and uh, I'm Kevin Healy, by the way. I don't know, leave out the by the way, but I'm Kevin Healy. And um, we've got Juliet Fox pressing buttons for us. She <laughs> waves her hand. <laughs> Better pour myself a cup of tea to get into the spirit of the show. There we are. And Karina's due shortly. Uh, Zeb, if she's listening, um, hope you're feeling okay still. She rang this morning to say <laughs> she'd tested positive to the dread COVID, but she was feeling okay. However, uh, she's not coming in, and uh, Karina's a last-minute replacement who should be here any second, let's hope. Um, anyway, Juliet's filling in for us rather nicely so far. Um, for instance, we're on air. That's a good start. I'm going to have a sip of tea. On today's program, we are going to be talking in the last half hour to one of our regular irregulars, or irregular regulars, whatever you call them, um, Helen Vandenberg, and it's going to just to catch up for the year on what's happened and... Uh, She's going to give us a rundown, and there's been a fair bit happening in areas she's concerned about, so we'll have no shortage. In fact, she left me a message yesterday responding to say she could come on, and we could have just recorded the message, really, and played it as a show. That was it. So we could have. So it was good. She got a whole series of things to talk about. Let you know. I uh, thought we'd kick off with just looking at the election last Saturday, because I think a couple of things are rising out of it. One was that... Um, <clears throat> It proved for the third time in a row that Rupert Murdoch's lost all influence in this place in terms of influencing elections. He, he, he tried to stop Andrews being elected in the first place, and then he got even more rabid in the first in that term. And by the next time, he um, <clears throat> they increased their majority thanks to Rupert. And this time he got even more rabid. In fact, by the final days, you would have thought that Andrews was some sort of clone between Hitler and Dracula. Uh, and yet they maintained their majority. Now, they certainly lost votes in working-class seats of the West, which is a further reflection, I think, on how they do treat the working class and treat what they consider safe seats. But that's, another, that's another question. But it certainly showed that Murdoch's influence has waned completely, and there's several reasons for that. I think one is that perhaps the electorate's more, more smart, but also, because a lot of people, I still do, but a lot of people don't even read newspapers anymore, and that's a, a further factor, I think, in the whole thing, although I'm sure he's online news and his, his foxes and things are still running the same rabid lines. <clears throat> the other thing I wanted to mention, because I thought it was really important, was in in particularly working class seats, how the Victorian socialists polled very well indeed. And uh, it hasn't really been reflected by the media other than there was a comment about it on Saturday night, I think, on the ABC. They mentioned in a couple of seats how well the socialists were going. But that, that, was, uh, that was extraordinarily good. Uh, and they got, you know, nine, ten thousand, or they got, they got, in the seat I'm in, they got a very high vote, in fact. Um, 
But the interesting one was, I thought, in Inner Metropolitan, which is the one that I'm also in, uh, I think it's called Inner Metropolitan, I'll have a look, Northern Metropolitan, in fact, it's called. Um, but <clears throat> in that, if you look at the um, upper house voting, as, as of Monday morning, there'll be a lot more votes to come in, I'm sure, but as of Monday morning's re- reporting in the media, you had the, th- had the three parties, the, the Labor Party, the Liberal Party, which was way down anyway, um, and... Um, you had the Greens, but then the fourth, and there's a whole you know, raft, there's about 20 or more bloody candidates, uh, fourth with 9,500 votes, 9,600 and so votes, are the Australian, uh, the um, Victorian Green, Victorian uh, Socialists, uh, 9,000 something or other, I can't wait it with my silly little glasses here today, 9,500 and something. But anyway, the, the Victorian Socialist Party, uh, came in fourth of the candidates there. Now, um, that means that even though they're predicting that the Reason Party and um, Fiona Patton are going get to a, get a seat there, they in fact outpolled her quite substantially. But because of the preference deals that go on, no doubt, uh, they won't get up because there's not too many of the others going to preference the Victorian Socialists. But in terms of primary votes, they ran a very strong fourth um, to the other three parties. <coughs> I thought that was worth commenting on. Um, it's an interesting development, in fact, and in many lower house seats, they did. there were some lower house seats they ran in they didn't do too well, but there were some where they went very well indeed. So there you have a sip of tea and clear my throat a bit here. <coughs> there we are, that was, it. that was me clearing my throat. Um, now, a further fact, we're now in the Middle East, we're seeing uh, the World Cup being played in Qatar and people are... Uh, commenting on the human rights of people in those sort of places uh, and how <clears throat> protests, etc., and, and happening in China at the moment as well, where protests and dissent are being crushed pretty quickly, unlike here where you're allowed to go into the forest and protest as long as you're prepared to get a massive fine and do two years in jail. Uh, but uh, or, or, uh, So we don't bring in those sort of laws here where you can't protest without massive penalties, and it's ridiculous. But... Donald Trump, they find that bloke who used to be the President of the United States, he's just done a deal with Oman, which is one of those countries uh, that has a bit of a human rights problem, and he's going to build a golf resort, which is wonderful to see. He's just done a deal with them to do a build a golf resort, which will have, uh, I think it's 25,000 apartments. In fact, it's going to have hotels and residential living. It's, it's quite lovely, and it should be very pleasant. Uh, but he's uh, he's expecting to do even more of these deals around these places in the future. So it's good to see that Don is uh, is making a quid for himself with with these wonderful people whose human rights records are so good. Uh, we mentioned last week, of course, how um, Afghanistan has now banned women from even parks and gyms just because they well they don't need exercise anyway, do they? Uh, and but right here in Victoria, we. The government has done a has signed a deal to for a live music venue in Docklands, which will be a pop up they call it, but it's going to be it's going to be uh, quite massive because it's going to have a thirty five hundred capacity space for concerts and things in there, and the company developing it is uh, is Live Nation, whose third biggest shareholder is uh, the 
Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi and the, the Saudi government are the biggest shareholders. Now, we rather think the Saudi government isn't actually short of a quid, but you'll be pleased to know that our government is providing $5 million toward the, uh, toward the project uh, with a Saudi company. I would have thought you should have, uh, in fact, done the reverse and um, hit them for something and then send them away. Um, but anyway, that's we're spending $5 million to support a, a, a company owned by the Crown Prince of, uh, of Saudi, which is great news. Uh, and the report in The Age the other day said that the Victorian government did not answer questions about Live Nation's involvement in the proposal, but a spokesperson said the Andrews Labor government has allocated $5 million in partnership with the City of Melbourne to create a pop-up live performance venue which will attract new audiences and activate underused parts of the CBD. As is standard, the procurement process will be tendered under strict guidelines and on and on. And... Um, they go on, and a booking agent said, while the government had identified the importance of live music, handing over a new venue to Live Nation would be a mistake. It makes absolutely no sense that they would fund a Saudi-backed multinational that is being called out globally for inflating event prices and reducing competitiveness. And this brings us to the crux of this one. The lawmakers in the US called for Live Nations to be broken up following accusations of price gouging, and the New York Times has reported that the company is now being investigated by the US government following claims it has abused its market power. So you've got the company not only Saudi-owned but being investigated for all sorts of abuses. Uh, but we're offering $5 million toward helping it uh, set up a live concert venue in that part of the world, which is just great news, isn't it? Juliet's, uh, <laughs> Juliet's so determined not to say anything on this program. She's actually kept a mask on today. She's <laughs> being very serious about all this. Ah, another. Now, last week I think we quoted the um, the US um, Defence Minister, um, uh, Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defence, about, uh, again, getting weapons and, uh, and war and the need for war and how um, he was really building up the, uh, the anti-China stuff. Well, he's told Australia, we must invest for war, the war of tomorrow, he says, we must invest for it. And um, he says Australia and other allies will need to reallocate their resources to fight the wars of tomorrow with investments in advanced technologies, a priority for any modern military. So... And he wants he talks about nuclear, of course, and all that stuff, but it goes on and on. It's just absolute warmongering of a great sort. Uh, and when he says reallocate, of course, he means you take money away from other th- areas like maybe a bit of well, public housing, doesn't matter, we don't have any. Um, but transport and hospitals and, and health services generally and social welfare generally and helping the poor generally, all those things that education, all those things that don't matter a lot when you've got a send a few nuclear bombs off to get somebody. So uh, that's that's the go there. So, And in fact, it follows up last week, of course, when a former Australian ambassador to the US, the former Treasurer Joe Hockey, um, made a pretty similar claim. He actually allocated certain areas, um, social areas, that we needed to cut back on so we could spend more to defend ourselves. And he was back in the AUKUS deal totally and the need to spend even more money on nuclear 
submarines and all sorts of things. So clearly the, 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 the mood at the moment is that we must be spending a lot more on those things, and this is coming from quite responsible people like the US Secretary of Defence and Joe Hockey, uh, all telling us we have to cut back on paying for other non-essential services. Uh, you'll be pleased to know, Juliet. Uh, and on a happier note, on a much more happy note, uh, Jerry Harvey, one of our favourite people of Harvey Norman, Jerry says he feels Christmas sales are going to be a record and he doesn't think there's any recession as far as he's concerned anyway, and I'm sure it isn't for him. <laughs> so, good old Jerry. It's just a bit of bad luck. He's still facing those charges, though, for misleading advertising and... Uh, uh, he and uh, the other company, the finance company that was involved, we mentioned that a few weeks ago, but for those who didn't hear it, poor Jerry has been charged, and that's a terrible thing to do to him because he's such a happy man. He's always happy, and uh, and who wouldn't be with his wealth? <coughs> Picture of him here with his wife, Katie Page. Katie actually runs the um, Magic Millions um, horse sales, thoroughbred sales that they also own, and... Uh, and Katie runs that, which makes millions as well. So he's got a few irons in the fire, poor Jerry. So that's probably why he feels the recession isn't all that close. But the, the, he got he got sprung. We mentioned it, but I'll mention it in case people didn't quite pick it up. They got sprung because they do offer uh, interest-free and um, 60 months to repay or whatever it is. Um, and... Um, they just forgot, and when you, I pointed out at the time, when you've got so much advertising as Jerry does, you can forget little details, can't you, Julian? I mean, you can forget little details. Like the fact that to get the interest free and the repayment scheme they offer you, you actually have to take out a credit card with the finance company that is associated with them, and that has a fee of 500 and something dollars to join up and during the course of your interest-free period. And they just, and look, you could have a simple oversight, particularly a man of Jerry's uh, wealth, I mean, 547 or whatever the amount was, it's irrelevant. So you can easily forget it. So anyway, as a result of that, even though he just forgot it, they've, uh, they've charged him with misleading advertising and he's got to face up to it. Touch a bad luck there, I would have thought. Um... Anyway, that's that for him. And another one, another one about charming, charming entrepreneurs, of course, is Elon Musk. And Elon, uh, having bought Twitter recently, seems to want to send it broke as fast as possible. But anyway, he's, we know he sacked about half the staff, and it's catching because Amazon, another one of those similar companies, has also slashed jobs by $10,000, uh, claiming, again, the economy isn't going as well as it should be. So they've got rid of $10,000. Elon sacked half the staff and then lots more left because of that. So uh, I don't know what's left with the skeleton is left behind. But he's still not doing too badly, really, because he um, he he got a multi-million pay package from Tesla, which, of course, is his electric car company. Uh, shareholders have got a case saying he didn't deserve it, but they actually passed a a um, resolution at Tesla's board to give him a maximum of share options of a maximum of $84 billion. Uh, and some shareholders say, well, hang on, we, we that money could go into be distributed among us. Poor old shareholders, don't you feel for shareholders? But anyway, Elon um, has uh, had the board allocate him $84 billion in share options. And I think that's just quite reasonable for a man of his his uh, stature and 
and all that. But Amazon, as I said, uh, 10,000. So they're slashing jobs all over the place, but somehow they seem to uh, keep going, which is, which is really good, really good. Uh, and on such matters to do with, uh, with the corporate sector, uh, I'll just read the headline because I think it's enough. Uh, but the, uh, the, the, even the Treasury here said, this is quite amazing, uh, corporate profits are not to blame for rising inflation. Corporate profits are not to blame for rising inflation. Run through that one, Juliet. Put it, run it through there behind your mask. Um, that's right. Yes, okay. Not to blame for... So it's obviously the people's problem. Well, we know it's wages and uh, that's why they have to stay down. Uh, they, they seem to... Well, they, don't, they don't forget it, but they don't acknowledge it. But, of course, in economic terms, wages are but the price of labour. So if all other prices are going up, then the price of labour should go up with them, but it's the one price they say shouldn't go up. But then again, then again, uh, the corporate sector points out that their profits are not nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. Julian just shook her head. By the way, that was sort of speaking on air. Um, and Karina's taken a while to get her, isn't she? It's nine eighteen. Well, she'll be here soon. But I did wake her up at eight o'clock, so she had to rush around and get here. So we, we won't. Um, we won't criticise her for that. Uh, now, this again is the United States. Uh, we point out, well, they they do run the world, and this just about proves that there was a headline in two days ago in the Financial Review on the World page. The chief headline was, and think about this one in terms of saying, well, we can just do what we like around the whole world. U.S. grants Chevron oil license in Venezuela. U.S. grants an oil license in Venezuela, where it's had a economic boycott going on for a number of years, and the place is suffering dramatically. Uh, the people are suffering dramatically because of the shortage of goods and shortage of all sorts of things due to the U.S. embargo, like Cuba. But now they've said they'll allow Chevron to um, to extract oil in a partnership with the state-owned oil company. But there is a caveat on that, uh, Julia, you'll be pleased to hear, because I hope you don't think the Venezuelan government or the, the Venezuelan-owned oil company is going to get anything out of this. They're allowing them to extract oil and sell it in the United States, but all the proceeds have to go only to Chevron and not to Venezuela, and the pro- including paying off people in the United States who claim they're owed money by Venezuela. So they'll be repaid from the Venezuelan oil that Chevron will extract, but Venezuela itself won't get a cent out of it. Uh, so they're, they're pretty kind, aren't they? Because it gets, gets one thing off their back. People get paid, they reckon they're owed money, and Chevron will make a quit out of it. And, and Chevron, of course, we mentioned last week here in Australia, which um, Chevron, of course, um, opened up the Barrow Island gas plant off Western Australia at the time there was some opposition to it on the basis that Barrow Island was pristine, ecologically fragile. Uh, it used to be till Chevron turned up anyway. And uh, Chev- one of the guarantees it gave in terms of getting the licence was that it would bury the CO2 in the in, on Barrow Island. It would do the old sequestration trick, the, the ostrich trick, bury your head in the sand trick. And... Uh, it's um, it, So it started operating, and it's been operating on the basis of that guarantee that the CO2 would be buried. Now, at that time, and I mentioned this last week on the program, we interviewed a, 
an academic geologist whose name was um, Llewellyn um, something, Llewellyn, a lovely woman with a wonderful Welsh accent. She was lovely to listen to. Um, and um, and she pointed out the the ge- geology of... Uh, of Barrow Island is quite fragile, is quite porous, and so if you want just to get out, it'll come out again. So, as a result of all that, the Chevron has had a little bit of trouble, uh, and uh, and as a result, also some of their pipelines corroded and rusted, so they've had to close things down in various places. But anyway, they're still only well, they claim they're burying a bit of it, but not lots. Still struggling to get the whole thing to work. But even so, last week they gave a guarantee. They they said Australia with Chevron leading the way, could could take, could be a sink for ages CO2 and they could liquefy their CO2, send it to us and Chevron would bury it for them. Now, that seems to have the odd problem. One, we're taking pollution from other people even though we send it the other way to them all the time. Uh, but secondly, uh, burying it, saying they can bury it, presumably at a cost, of course, they'd have to charge for this because it's only reasonable, but... The only other problem seems to be that it doesn't actually work. Uh, and that would seem to me to be a major problem. But anyway, Chevron's a wonderful, respectable company, so what are, who are we to criticise? That's all I can say. Um, so there we are. Uh, also, Qantas has been, is currently fighting a court case for unfair dismissal by an employee called Theo Ceramatitis. And he was um, he was a ground crew employee, but he was also the health and safety representative. And he was um, stood down on February two, twenty twenty. That is at the start of the if you recall the start of the COVID breakdown, because he told his fellow workers they if they didn't feel comfortable they shouldn't have to clean out aircraft arriving rising from China arriving from China at that time. And Qantas uh, stood him down, but also refused the request to provide much better equipment for people, much better clothing, much more safe clothing for people. And um, so he uh, he was stood down, and now he's he's challenging it. But anyway, that's currently before the courts. We're interested to see what happens to that. But it shows you know Qantas's great concern because Alan Joyce keeps telling us in that dreadful Irish accent of his that. Uh, that they really care about their employees. They're the ones they stand down regularly and sack regularly. But anyway, that's that. Um, I've said before, Juliet, because having said that, I've, I've got, you know, on both sides of my family, I've got Irish background, my Irish heritage, but I love the Irish accent. But when I hear Alan Joyce, I hate it. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's extraordinary, isn't it? Um, yes. And uh, anyway, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's for that one. Uh, another one that is interesting, though, the the Jackboots Con Mission, the Smash the Evil Union's Jackboots Con Mission, uh, that's the Building and Construction Commission, if people aren't aware, which is sole role is, of course, to smash the construction unions. Um, <clears throat> there's been a... There was a report that said there was a workplace culture of of, of, which involved and well, uh, was defended, but um, the criticism said the methods and processes with some of it, it, it 
it contained criticism of the methods and processes with some employees say it focused too much on litigation and statistics. We visit the same site up to four times and I think it's borderline harassment just to get the stats up, one employee was quoted. Agency focus seems to be too much on stats and litigation instead of what it was created for to help and change the behaviour of the industry. Well, that's the behaviour of the union, which shouldn't act like a union, obviously. And it goes on with those sort of criticisms. But then the nine papers, the nine news outlets, uh, including The Age and the Financial Review, uh, were threatened with litigation by government lawyers if they published the criticism. Now, they've gone on and published it, obviously. But anyway, they were threatened um, with legal action if they took if they published the stuff that um, some employees were saying about the mob they worked for, which of course will be uh, wiped out anyway in the current legislation going through Parliament, although how much it's going to get wiped out, wait and see, because the, the, the Rudd government promised to get rid of it altogether. And if you recall, it, uh, it tore up, the, it tore up the, the front and back cover of work choices and left the in-between bits still there. And at that time, they set up another authority which was not dissimilar. And we can all recall the phrases, the phrase that Julia Gillard time and again said, looking at these things, we have to have a tough cop on the beat, she said, which meant the same thing as the Liberal government says about smashing the construction unions. But uh, currently in the, in the legislation, it's supposed to be wiped out. So we'll wait and see what happens. But it's interesting that a number of employees were even critical of it. But then when the papers tried to publish it, and they have anyway, but tried to publish it. They were threatened with legal action for for publishing a document by the employees of that organisation, which is pretty interesting. And the other one, I I found this really interesting because I think think this shows that while we can often be critical of employers who don't want to pay workers, you get some employers who really fight for their workers to get more money. And at the moment, you're getting it from the childcare industry and the aged care industry. They're saying that even though the recent decision to give an increase to aged care workers uh, was not, you know, was was only fair, they they agree with that. They say yes, they should be paid even a lot more than they're getting now. And childcare um, industry is saying our childcare workers should be paid a lot more. And it's I, I just wonder. I'm perhaps I'm being too cynical here, whether the fact that the, these are industries that said their workers should be paid more uh, related to the fact that the government actually meets the bill and they don't have to pay it. Uh, now, that that probably is over-cynical, Juliet, do you think? Because uh, 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 if they had to pay it themselves, would they still have the same? Well, who knows? I mean, they're, they're caring people, so they probably would. And I'm, I'm being... I'm being awful about that. Anyway, there's lots more things here. We won't go into them because it's about time to get on to Helen Vandenberg. And uh, I don't know what's happened to Karina, but I said to Juliet, can you come in for a few minutes till Karina arrives? Well, it's now 28 minutes and we'll see what happens. But uh, after this break, we'll talk to Helen, Helen Vandenberg and get some common sense into this program. Environmental Film Festival Australia invites you to EFA Presents Sovereign Cinema, a one-day cinema event celebrating Indigenous perspectives on climate, ecology, culture and custodianship. EFA Presents Sovereign Cinema includes two shorts packages and a main feature, all sharing unique stories which reveal the resilience of Indigenous people and the importance of protecting ancestral connections to country. 
Join us at ACME on Saturday the 10th of December for our first in-person screening since 2019. Tickets and passes on sale now at ether.org.au. The Environmental Film Festival Australia is a 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Robbie Thorpe. Crime Scene Australia, it's not just an ordinary comic. How would you describe this comic, Tara? It's a comic book for adults. We're taking Australian history, turning it on its head and making it real history. It's funny and it's dark. It's supernatural. We've got to launch the comic. Robbie and I will both be there from 6 o'clock. Carol Carpenter from Us Mob playing a bunch of songs. We do a bit of a smoking ceremony to bring everybody in. To all the listeners out there, if you're interested in coming along, it's Thursday, the 1st of December, 6 o'clock at Wolfhound Cafe on Brunswick Street for Crime Scene Australia. When you know your history, you know you know where you're coming from. A 3CR supporter. is shining, or at least it's attempting to, so get your picnic blankets out and gather your mates and stock up on your summer wine. We're so excited that our summer wine fundraiser is back. This year we're selling delicious wine generously provided by 3CR supporter Jamsheed Wines. Just $20 per bottle, or you can snap up even more of a bargain by buying in a dozen or half dozen lots and mixes. Order online 3cr.org.au forward slash shop or call the station on 9419 8377 during business hours. Jamsheed Wines is a 3CR supporter. Did you miss 3CR's broadcast of the inaugural historic first Trans Pride March Melbourne on Sunday 13 November? Perhaps you want to break a binary and listen to it again. Well, either way, you can. It's now available for listening at 3cr.org.au, Trans Pride March Melbourne. Turn it up, feeling up, peeking under me, keeping on it all night. Join in the historic occasion and support our trans and gender diverse communities here in Nam. 3CR Radical Radio, proudly supporting trans and gender diverse people as part of diversity in Nam. 3cr.org.au, Trans Pride March Melbourne. Okay, back on here, and Helen Vandenberg, I hope she's listening, um, rig in, because we've, we've tried both mobile and landline, and uh, we're just getting a message, but she did get back last night and say she'd be available, so let's uh, let's hope she uh, gets back to us shortly, otherwise we could. Karina's turned up, though, now. Karina, say hello. Hey, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> See, Juliet doesn't say a word, so we, we, but anyway, you're there, and um, as we know, our, our mate Zeb has uh, come down with 
with COVID, but uh, as, as she said, she's not feeling too bad about it. But uh, no, no, not really bad about it. I mean, she's not feeling too bad health-wise. Yeah, she's just so happy she's <laughs> spread right. she's, it to oh, everybody. Very excited, very <laughs> excited. That's right. Perhaps I should have rephrased that a little bit. Mm, um, maybe. But anyway, uh, she's, uh, she'll be, well, hopefully she'll be back next week. And, uh, and we've only got two weeks to go, Karina. I mentioned that earlier in the show. But, uh, not long, is it? No, it's not long. Where's the, the four- time gone? The 14th is, the, is the, the second Wednesday now where it's going to be the 14th. So we're not going to go through to the 21st. That's getting too close to Christmas for my liking. So, mm. so we'll just have two programs next month and that's it. And that's that's it. Okay, so we'll just we'll do a <laughs> bit more raving on. We were raving on anyway and uh, we'll just keep raving on. Um but uh, I'm going to dash next door and try a phone. Well, if, yeah. Well, she well she probably we left a message with our line, so hopefully she'll she'll give us a call. Um, but the uh, interesting, I was going to a couple of things I was going to raise with her, in fact. But nonetheless, there's a report come out when we talk about the new government and we talk about renewable energy and, and how we have to have to wean our way off coal and gas and perhaps more than wean, just stop completely, uh, which would be the ideal. Uh, only one clean energy project uh, reached financial close in the third quarter of the year, with the past year being the worst on record for new approved capacity, according to a new report. Um, and this Kevin, is re- I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm... Um- I feel really rude interrupting you, but I did just answer the phone and it was Helen. Shall I just pop her right oh, on? I'll pop her on because, well, yeah, that's right. Well, she has okay, – very good, very Let's good. Let's go. Okay, so we'll just go straight to her. Helen Vandenberg's on the line. Helen, thanks for calling back. I'm just – that noise is me throwing papers around. <laughs> um, and uh, welcome to the program. We we said today we got well, – actually, we decided last week after the, we had a fifth Wednesday we'd get you on to do a – a rundown of the year from your point of view. So um, I'll let you start, actually. Um, I was saying earlier, the message you left for me yesterday, we could have just put on air and that would have been it. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I will say one thing, Helen. You did say to me, uh, the message said um, you didn't have anything till the afternoon, but I suppose you don't want to talk between nine and two. And I thought, well, of all the people we get on this show, Helen's the only one who could. Um, (laughs) <laughs> but but also I don't she, know whether that's an indictment or a compliment. That's right, but she'd also <laughs> anyone who couldn't make sense for that time as well. Uh, uh, the last bit was a compliment in case you wondered. Um <laughs> Helen, anyway, what I've got a few things I want to talk to you about, but I'm sure you've got plenty you want to talk to us about as well. Well, you can ask away. Oh well I was gonna go on about the 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 results of the recent floodings. Um uh, it does lead. There's, Australia's recently signed an international um, agreement to cut back on plastic, but it won't take full effect till about 2040 or something, which seems to me as you know a bit bit too late. But nonetheless, that and and all the rubbish that's been found. There was a story recently about the Merry Creek being full of rubbish uh, following the floods, and I'm sure over your way the same thing's happening. I suppose this whole question of rubbish in waterways. Well, yeah, that's a huge one. But I mean. <clears throat> Well, I went and looked at parts of the Maribyrnong. Now, first of all, the heaviest rains fell on Mount Macedon and over between Landfield and Romsey between Tuesday and evening and Thursday morning. And if you look at Melbourne Water's flow gauges for Jackson's Creek and Deep Creek, 
you can see the creeks been bubbling along at a higher level and then suddenly it's 20 to 5 and hits 5.15, which means it's hit major um, flood level and it just goes straight up at a till 9 o'clock. So by 9 o'clock that night, perfectly clear from the flow gauges that we're going to have a major flood in the Maribyrnong. Now, Melbourne Water has the data, but what the Bureau does with it is another matter. So I don't really know... Um, why people weren't um, moved quicker from their homes. But, um, and the other thing is that the banks of the Maribyrnong are just littered with plastic. Now, in some areas, um, councils have been able to get down. Maribyrnong and Moon Valley councils have removed most, I think, all of the litter from the areas that are easy for the public to access. But in those areas where it's not easy to access and community groups can't get there because it's too dangerous, because the banks are too steep, steep, slip and muddy, we can't get into doing the clean-up. So it'll be... Um, this is going to continue to be picked up and taken down to the bay for everyone to swim amongst them, as well as our marine animals. So the inertia on plastic pollution, which has um, been going on for a long time, is going to take a very long time to clean up and I'm not con the other thing that's happened of course is the, the engineers have rushed water off every roof into the creeks and in spite of the fact that there are supposedly water tanks and you know stormwater you know there's an assessment about how you can um, slow your stormwater getting to the creek that, that it's pretty inadequate so we were lucky that the middle suburbs, like where I am, didn't have a heavy rainfall because if we had been contributing more water, the flood would have been worse. So, um, and, you know, there were some local people who said they didn't understand why they were flooded this time because there hadn't been much local rain. So there's a lack of understanding in the community of how the catchment works and how far away the water travels. Um all the plastic that you pick... I mean, the Maribyrnong catchment is 1,408 square kilometres. So you've basically got any roof that's in that area throwing its water down to either Jackson's or Deep Creek to get into the Maribyrnong. Um, in the suburbs, uh, you see littering streets that's not addressed with. You see cigarettes lying around and they've got toxic chemicals in them and they're very dangerous for marine. So this whole in inertia on having people pick up the litter, preventing the litter, putting installing litter traps for a start that would, they wouldn't have worked in a flood in here is, is one aspect. But also the amount of debris in there takes the oxygen out of the water. So I don't know how many small creatures have died off in this flood because there hasn't been oxygen in the water. The water is still muddy, so the sun can't get through. So your plants that should be growing and getting sunlight are not getting it. And basically anything that is still alive in the river is trying to live... If we were trying to live through a couple of months of sandstorms, we'd find it pretty uncomfortable. But for little creatures that are developing, it's impossible. So the, the macroinvertebrates that are at the bottom of the creek, the nymphs for the dragonflies and damselflies, the back swimmers, the fish, they're, they're all imperiled by this flood. And the Maribyrnong has a pretty low um, 
rating in the Melbourne Water River Health Strategy, the macro and vertebrate population for the catchment is low and predicted to get very low unless there's a change in practice. Um, we have very low platypus numbers and um, we may lose them completely if we don't act properly. So there's huge issues confronting our catchment. Plastic's one of them. Um, preventing stormwater from being rushed to the um, creeks means we will need large-scale storm, precinct-scale stormwater capture treatment and reuse. We, use, we need to put water back in the landscape. We can do that by creating um, ephemeral um, wetlands, you know, temporary ones, and which we've done two of those on Steel Creek and are planning to do a third one. We can create artificial wetlands with this water. But the other thing is if we cleaned up the water, we could repurpose it for um, other purposes. And, you know, regional towns release their treated sewage into rivers and, into rivers and creeks. Mm. So you're getting barbiturates and other pharmaceuticals coming down in that water. So this whole, all the issues we've been following through the Concerned Waterways Alliance, which is an alliance of river groups from the Snowy down to the Glenelg, so that's east, that's northeast Victoria, right down to Glenelg to the west. We've all said the same thing. There's too much water being extracted. Um, the pollution from the treated waste um, water treatment systems into our rivers and creeks is bad for the health of the river. And it's possible to, in other countries, they just treat it and bring it up through reverse osmosis to potable water standards. You don't put it back in your rivers and your creeks. Mm. And, got and of course, Helen, on your side of town, you also get those periodical chemical fires that cause incredible damage. Oh, yeah. Well, we get everything, Kevin. We just, you know, we, we had the basket case on this side of the river. Um, and, I mean, the EPA is starting to do more preventative work, but not on a real large scale. Um, they're doing blitzes in different areas. They are now focusing around preventing things getting into rivers and creeks, and they are particularly inspecting places that could have fires or release stuff into creeks and rivers. So they're changing their focus. So that's a good thing to think about. Mm. Well, they got charged. Um, They've been charged, of course, over that Campbellfield fire. Um, yeah, there's also there's a guy that released detergent into Cherry Creek, Cherry Lake, and he's been fined in the millions, and that's the first. So there is change coming. But the damage that's there is going to take a long time to recover from. And if we can hold on to our creeks and rivers with life in them, we'll be doing well. Right, but unless the government faces up to the dramatic need to change some of our practices by our water corporations, they take too much water out of the rivers and the creeks. The irrigators are taking too much water. The post, you know, the people who want to sell bottled water are taking groundwater and river water. You know, there really just has to be um, the sustainable water strategy. That it's recognised the problems whether or not the government's going to have the the courage to act on all the good ideas that are in that is going to be their real true test as to whether or not they're thinking of the future. Yeah. I mean, we, we don't need councils to be planting deciduous trees 
because those deciduous leaves, when they get into the stormwater system and then down into the rivers and the creek, they also starve the water of oxygen. Now, I've been telling Mooney Valley Council that for as long as Mooney Valley Council's been around. And when I wrote to them recently, I got an answer back saying, oh, well, we don't plant deciduous trees near the creeks. And that's not the point. doesn't matter how far away they are. They get into the drains and down to the creeks. Isn't so that was a pretty pathetic answer. Um, so there's just so much education that needs to happen and so much change in practice. And we know the thing is, we know how to do it. None of these things are impossible to solve. It just takes targets. We just say set targets, give us the program with the timeline and the guarantee for funding for it to go on over quite a number of years, and it can be done. That's just on water, right? Um, Why the floodplain of the Maribyrnong got, you know, built on, I don't know. Why I I don't believe Melbourne Water supported the installation of that flood wall around Flemington Racecourse. Now, that wouldn't have changed. We had access to the floodplain there. The people in Kensington wouldn't have been flooded. Or or they may have got a few centimetres in their backyards, but it wouldn't have gone into their houses, Mm. right? But those on the floodplain of the Maribyrnong are in the wrong place. The defence site for the Commonwealth Government is on a floodplain, and yet there's still talk of developing that, right? So how do you get it through to people that you cannot control a river? A river needs its floodplain. That's how it works. So that's just one of the yeah, issues. Well, um, he's talking federally, but Murray Watt, the Federal um, Emergency Management Minister, has said that. He said new laws are urgently needed to stop houses being built in high-risk floodplains or bushfire zones, and our... Our planning systems aren't fit for the fit for purpose in the face of increasing natural disasters driven by climate change. So, at least someone's having a look at it, I suppose. But that's something. Oh well, yeah, but we've been saying that kind of thing for a long time. I mean, when the flood wall was proposed for Flemington Racecourse, we all went out and protested against it and said, "You can't do that. That will cause flooding downstream in Kensington." Nobody listened. Mary Delahunty excluded Melbourne Water mm. from being a referral site. I can recall it being I a major understand. issue at the time, and people were saying, people like you and a lot of people were saying that was going to happen, and of course it happened. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a whole lot of... And I mean, the upshot of not letting everybody sprawl out as far as they like, it means that you're going to have to get people um, living in apartments. You're going to have to consolidate in the inner, in the suburbs, Right. Now, consolidation seems to mean take one quarter acre block and put two units or four units on it. Then that increases the amount of stormwater you're getting into your local creek, right? Because basically when they're developing now, I mean, if you go and look at Romsey, look at how big that suburb has become. And it's basically, you look at the land and it's basically just roof. There's very little garden, so there's no recharge for groundwater. So... And then you have people who who don't want development in their suburb. I mean, truly, we cannot afford the population that the government says it's happy to consider having. They do that for economic reasons, but the land can't take it. You've got to consolidate in the city in the middle suburbs, so you're going to have to have apartments. 
You're going to have to have much better public transport. You're going to have to have people close to their work. I mean, Ruth Crow and that um, Seeds for Change back in 1972, I think the book came out, was talking about the 20-minute suburbs then, right? And nothing's been done in that 50 years to, to heed the warning. So between the fires and the floods, let's hope they get their act together and start thinking differently because a lot of it's going to be very expensive and it's more expensive to fix it up after catastrophes than to do preventative work. So why developers have been allowed to have their head and squeeze as much profit as they can out of the land they develop? I mean, look who's paying for that, for that now. It'll be the taxpayer. Yeah, and that's, of course, developers. And they, well, they, one, they keep saying we need to open up more land for development, which, of course, means more land will be destroyed and more ecology will be destroyed. But then, secondly, they often sit on it anyway. Um, yeah, but then they promise us grassy plains, you know, oh, well, you know, we're taking this prime piece of grassy plains that's got a really good population of um, plants and animals on it, and we'll give you this part over there because we want to put coals there. Now, I mean, that happened down on the raft base down at um, Williams Landing. We lost the seed bank that still had um, rice flowers and orchids in it and we were given a derelict bit of land as the open space. And then, then councils turn around and say, oh, well, we've got to have recreational facilities for sport. And so you lose the land again. So there's no sort of dedication to... And when they do declare a parkland, like we're supposed to be getting a 1,000 hectare park up on Jackson's Creek. And you've got, um, well, you've got a situation with... No one's got money to develop the park. I mean, it's it's similar in a different area, but Tania Plibersek is saying she wants to stop a re- repeat of things like Ducan Gorge, but then she approves a fertiliser plant at Barra Peninsula and says the company's guaranteed oh. it can safely move the rock carvings. I mean, that's outrageous. It's Absolutely hideous. I don't know how many times I've signed petitions on that one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, who else has got that in the world, right? No one but us. And then we go and say, oh, just dig it up and move it. I mean, would anybody say dig up St Pat's Cathedral and move it somewhere else? Would they say move St Paul? Would they say, uh, you know, I mean, it's just disrespectful. Yeah, just uh, as I said, it's just outrageous, of course. But here, I mean, you're right. I mean, here, here we've talked about it time and again. But for instance, in the western suburbs, those grasslands are disappearing rapidly because that's one of the fastest growing areas of urban sprawl. Um, and we're seeing rare ecologies disappearing. I assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyhow, we um, we we just push on. Um, so there's a little bit of good news that the EPA may be changing. Um, uh, there's a good news in the fact that the, the uh, Concerned Waterways Alliance exists and we're staying on the case over the sustainable strategy to see the good potential in it get realised because if we don't, it'll just be another piece of paper. Um, I've, I've been told several times now that I will be seeing the significant overlays for the Maribyrnong and the Werribee and Lincoln's Creek in December. Well, I don't know if that's really going to happen. Um, all I know is that there are so many wonderful community groups scattered throughout the Maribyrnong, and John's got the same in the Werribee, um, that the community is, is dedicated to restoring their local patches. I think that wasn't happening. Nothing would get saved, basically. 
So you don't want the local um, groups um, to disappear off the scene because they're the ones putting in the reveg and looking after it. But whether or not that's going to survive the impact of climate change remains to see is remains to be seen. Mm. However, um, what else have we got? Oh, there's 315 million for urban parks um, over four years. There's 10 million for Green Links program. Uh, 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 if that's over four years between the five councils, it's not going to go very far. And the riparian vegeta- riparian area of the waterways is the area that urgently needs planting out. But unless we get on con- control of the splash floods and the um, decline in water in the dry times, we are in for major headaches with our rivers and creeks. So the Concerned Waterways Alliance is going to stay around and pursue the issue. Um, and at a local level, um, we have a Mooney Valley Sustainability Group that's working hard to get... Um, encouraging Mooney Valley Council to create a climate change officer um, because by the time the community is coming up with ideas, budgets are set, so we think we need we think council needs to have somebody dedicated to looking at that and driving our programs across the city from within council. Um, the um, Sydenham Park has been declared, but there's no money to develop it, and that's where you can actually see um, the junction of... You can see the confluence of Deep and Jackson's Creek, which is where the Maribyrnong actually forms. Now, there's a lovely-sized park there, but how are we going to protect the grasslands? There's a golf course in part of it. Um, we went and had a look at it on Sunday. The Jackson's Creek Eco Network, which is a... 12 environment groups around Jackson's Creek and its tributary. They organised a tour of their region and 36 of us went in three little buses to tour. We went and looked at Sydney Park. We looked at the area where we were opposite the Sunbury Rings looking out to the Macedon Ranges. Um, That's had a lot of um, Wurundjeri input into it, so that's going to be fantastic. But again, (laughs) nobody's got money for it. So, and there you go. And, I mean, Vic Rose has never put a litter trap on any of its arterial roads or its major freeways or neither do councils. So there's a lot of jobs that could be created by dealing with the issues and it would improve everybody's uh, local areas, it would improve our waterways and it would create hope if we did it all. And it's possible to do it. You just put in toxic mm. and treatment systems like the Germans did. Where there's a will, there's a way. That's the will that's, that's often the, the problem, isn't line. it? Yeah. Yeah. The, and with so many areas of government that we criticise, it's just a matter of will to do it and um, and put the money into that rather than where it's often going. Yeah. But there seem to be some pretty sacred silos in governments that don't like talking to one another and this is what really frustrates the community. I mean, we're teaching, we've been teaching kids in school for 20 years. Working in groups, you get a more diverse viewpoint. You get the benefit of everybody's skills and yet you get people within the water area of government and one part doesn't talk to the other and one part doesn't know what the other... You know, Melbourne Water is 
right really like at the bottom of the pile. Oh, here, you've got the job of looking after river health, but in the meantime, Southern Rural Water can give out extraction licences um, uh, willy-nilly, and um, the road department doesn't want to go to the expense of treating the toxicants coming off the roads or capturing the litter, so you get the job of cleaning it all up. Now, that's pretty unfair in my mind. Um, so you have one part of the water industry responsible for the health of the river and other parts of the same water industry are the ones responsible for causing the problem. On top of that, you've got the road authorities and then you've got the EPA who was uh, indifferent to the calls for community for them to, you know, force issues on litter capture. So... If they just get their heads together and work as a team, it'd be good. Helen, we're out of time, but we um, we and we didn't even get to mention Clean Away today, which is interesting. Uh, oh, they're still wow. promoting themselves as a great environmental concern. Uh, I, I get so cross every time I see their truck saying "caring for country," and I think, "Yeah, you're putting 122 <laughs> toxic chemicals into the groundwater on the banks of the Mooney Ponds Creek every day." for the next 100 years. That's really caring for country. Aren't Clean Away marvellous? We did mention Clean Away in the end. There you are. <laughs> but, you know, I see them. They, they run ads saying how wonderful they are for the environment, and I keep thinking of you. Um, Helen, look, we've got to have to wind up, but thanks for all your time the year when we talk to you a few times every year, and um, it's always interesting, and um, thanks for your time. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk about the concerns of the people of the West. They're a wonderful community. There's wonderful groups out here, and we're determined to get action. So, oh, we did go and see um, the Labor candidates in the lead-up to the... We asked to see 19 of them. I think we got to 14 of them in the end, and we've got a few more post-election that we're going to see, and we're going to be... And we've been invited to do a presentation to them in February, and, you know, we just sort of saying, well, they make up 34% of the government, so they need to make sure that the West gets better delivery. Well, given the big swings and in I the West, they might, next... we've got to finish, but given the big swings in the West, they might actually listen to you this time. Well, well live in hope. That's my motto. Yeah. Okay. All right, Helen, look, thanks so much for all your time, and um, we'll talk again next year. And thanks to 3CR and all the people behind the scenes there that keep that keep all the shows on the road. Okay, thanks, Helen. Take care. Bye. Helen Vandenberg, Karina, next week, transport. Next week, transport. And that's our, what, next week's our second last for the year? Mm. Great. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.